Welcome to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. Hi, I'm Dr. Patricia Halligan. We can't talk about recovery from alcohol and drug problems without talking about healing from trauma. Post-traumatic stress disorder and substance use disorders commonly co-occur. This is called comorbidity. The majority of these patients only ever receive treatment for substance use disorder. Failure to treat the PTSD worsens that person's chance for a full recovery. I am super excited to introduce our guests today. Dr. Kathleen Brady and Dr. Sudi Back, two world-renowned experts on PTSD and addiction. They are world-class speakers, prolific writers, respected researchers, gifted clinicians, and wonderful educators. Dr. Kathleen Brady is internationally respected as a clinical addiction specialist and a leading clinical and translational researcher. She's been conducting scientific investigations and clinical work in the field of addictions and psychiatric disorders for over 30 years. Her research focuses on pharmacotherapy of substance use disorders, comorbidity of psychiatric disorders and addictions, gender differences and women's issues and addictions, and the neurobiologic connections between stress and addictions. She has received numerous federal research grants, has published over 400 peer-reviewed journal articles, and co-edited 10 books. Dr. Brady is the Principal Investigator of MUSC's Clinical and Translational Science Award, Principal Investigator of the Southern Consortium Node of the NIDA-funded Clinical Trials Network, and Director of MUSC's Women's Research Center. She is the former Vice President for Research at the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. Brady has served as the President of the Association for Medical Education and Research in Substance Use Disorders, President of the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry, and is the immediate past President of the International Society of Addiction Medicine. Dr. Sudi Back is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at the Medical University of South Carolina and a staff psychologist at the Ralph H. Johnson VA in Charleston, South Carolina. Dr. Back received her PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Georgia in 2004 and completed her clinical internship with specialization in the treatment of substance use disorders at Yale University. Over the past 20 years, her research has focused on the intersection of substance use disorders and post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as sex and gender differences in addiction. Dr. Back has published over 150 articles and chapters and co-edited three books. In 2014, Dr. Back and Dr. Brady and their colleagues published the COPE Manual, an integrated exposure-based therapy manual titled Concurrent Treatment of PTSD and Substance Use Disorders Using Prolonged Exposure. Currently, Dr. Back is principal investigator of three ongoing randomized clinical trials targeting the behavioral and or pharmacological treatment of substance use disorders and PTSD. She provides clinical care at MUSC and the VA, and she is actively involved in mentoring the next generation of addiction scientists. The number one goal of both these amazing women is to use science and research in order to improve the lives of patients. Dr. Brady, Dr. Back, welcome to the show. Thank you, it's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having us. My pleasure and my honor. Uh, I imagine there are several people in the listening audience who have experienced trauma and may be wondering if they qualify for post-traumatic stress disorder. Dr. Brady, I wonder if you would mind walking us through the kinds of questions you would ask in order to diagnose PTSD. So if someone's experienced something that is a pretty severe trauma, um, I think, and, and it's more than a month. So one of the things you need to remember is right after a trauma, almost everybody is going to experience some symptoms. Almost everybody will have some nightmares about it or intrusive thoughts or that sort of thing. 
what, what makes it a disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, is that those intrusive thoughts, that inability to put it out of your mind, your uh, nightmares, um, um, when you see reminders of it getting really reactive to those things that remind you of the trauma, if that lasts more than 30 days, then you're in the range of something that we might call PTSD. So what I'd ask is, when did this happen? And then are you still having trouble? And, and if it's a recent thing you want to just watch and, and make sure that, that it resolves normally, um, if it's something that happened a year or two ago, you want to know, are they still, are they still having a lot of lingering thoughts and intrusive memories, nightmares about it? And do they feel like their life has been changed by that event? Have, have things been different for them since that event happened in a bad way? Okay, thank you. And how many, what percent of people who actually experience trauma go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, you know, when you think about trauma, trauma is it's ubiquitous, unfortunately, in our environment. And it's even things like going through a hurricane. I mean, it can be natural disasters. It can be car accidents. Uh, also, it can be physical or sexual abuse. So uh, when you consider all of those possible trauma exposures, about 90% of the population will endorse having been exposed to something that qualifies as a traumatic event. Um, but the lifetime prevalence of PTSD is only about 8 to 10%. So when you think about it that way, um, you know, 90% of the time people resolve, have some emotional resolution of that trauma and it doesn't linger um, to impact them the rest of their lives. But if, if you've got PTSD, um, if you're one of that unlucky uh, eight to 10%, it really does impact your life. And Dr. Back, uh, what do your patients tell you about how PTSD impacts their quality of their life? Uh, I guess I'm taking a look at uh, what kinds of things they'll tell you regarding their own personal suffering, how they feel about themselves, how they feel about the world. Uh, how they feel about um, other people. Definitely. I think that um, it can affect and does affect all of those different aspects of a person's life and significantly reduces their quality of life. So it, generally, we hear a lot about impairments in um, vocational functioning. It's hard to work. Mm -hmm. It's hard to go to work. Um, trouble with family and social relationships. Um, those often can be you know, really deteriorated through PTSD, um, physical health as well. One of the one of the symptoms of PTSD is, um, as uh, Dr. Brady was mentioning, these intrusive thoughts and memories that are often associated with nightmares. And so, people have a really hard time sleeping, um, trouble concentrating. Uh, it can affect really all aspects, physically, mentally, um, economically, and family and social. And I've got uh, a patient that I'm thinking of right now who had uh, experienced uh, sexual abuse as a child, and even watching her kids uh, play fight on the rug or tickle each other, it, it's, it really triggers a bad memory of um, uh, her own sexual abuse as a child or having sex with her husband. Uh, so, uh, you know, she's unable to, she avoids all sorts of things, uh, can't watch uh, Law and Order SVU, uh, for example, you know, because they're talking about childhood sexual abuse. So avoidance is a big part of having post-traumatic stress disorder, correct? Yes, avoidance is one of the key, like, hallmark um, characteristics. And it's also what, in the short term, can help people feel a little bit better so if they avoid watching those shows or they avoid going to the store, they avoid going to their kids' uh, sporting events for the moment, they feel a little bit better. But in the long term, it's that avoidance that really can keep them stuck um, with PTSD. So a lot of the treatments, the behavioral treatments uh, that we do is to help people approach those things in their life that are safe, but they are causing some distress so that they can work through that and enjoy their life. Well, you have a really hard job getting them to talk about it because they even avoid talking about the trauma. Yes, and that's a good point too, that you really have to ask about it. Um, you know, many, many survivors of trauma do not want to 
um, they're very hesitant to talk about it. They might feel shameful, they might feel embarrassed about it. So it's really important to ask those specific you know, questions and open the door for them to share. I, I hear a lot from people with history of trauma with PTSD that they feel like they're damaged. Uh, they feel like damaged goods. Um, and that, and uh, the feeling of not being any, not being in control of their own life. I hear that a lot too. And I guess if you've got a substance use disorder and uh, PTSD, boy, both of those conditions lead to this feeling of a loss of empowerment, a loss of control, uh, and shame. Uh, so these are complicated patients, right? Very yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess, uh, Dr. Back, do men and women experience trauma differently? Well, um, they're often exposed to um, different types of trauma. Of course, there's some overlap, but women are more likely to experience um, sexual assault or rape um, or interpersonal traumas like domestic violence, whereas men are more likely to experience um, combat and war zone related traumas. Okay. And Dr. Brady, do you have anything to add to that? I'm wondering um, if women are more or less likely to develop PTSD than men? Well, um, the fact is we, that we used to think that was so, but it may just be different traumas have sort of a different potency in terms of the, their ability to produce PTSD. For instance, um, exposure to a natural disaster like a hurricane, unless you literally have your life threatened, is not particularly highly associated with PTSD. However, sexual assault is like 99% of people that have sexual assault are going to get PTSD. So um, it may just be that women are more likely to be exposed to the types of trauma that we know are highly associated with the development of PTSD. Oh, that's interesting. And, and Dr. Brady, what can you tell us about what's actually happening in the brain of someone who has post-traumatic stress disorder? So, you know, we all have this fight or flight system. We have a stress response, the normal stress response. And what, when the stress response is working well, what you want to see happen is a, a stressor comes along and you just rally all your resources so you can either fight or run away. So your heart rate's up, your blood pressure's up, um, you're super alert cognitively, you know, you're looking, you're scanning the environment for, for any other threats, that kind of stuff. A good, healthy stress response goes up in the, in, 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 um, when there is a threat, and then you return to normal when the threat goes. Because the last thing the body needs is to be walking around the world with your heart rate and blood pressure up and constantly scanning the environment. What happens with people with PTSD is that fight or flight system just gets turned on way too quickly and it's really slow to turn off. So they are, you know, what we call sort of hypervigilant, sort of always on alert, always scanning the environment, not feeling safe. Often they do have, um, you know, their blood pressure and heart rate is likely to go up much. So if they see something in their environment that reminds them of the trauma, they will have a response as if it's happening again. So they're just on high alert all the time. Oh, okay. So they perceive something as dangerous when it might not be. It might just be something that reminds them of the trauma and all of a sudden it's fight or flight again. Exactly. I mean, that's definitely one of the things that happens. So if you get mugged by an ATM machine on the corner of, you know, South Street and uh, Nilsson, uh, every time you go by that, you might have an elevation of your heart rate, elevation of your blood pressure. You may feel panicked when you're in a bank, when you're near an ATM, or when you're near that, that part of town. Yeah. And that's what we call sort of stimulus generalization. So uh, you're lucky if, if, if it's just the ATM. If you if something bad happened to you at an ATM, you walk right by that one. Of course, it's, the memory is going to come up. What happens with people with PTSD is you write it generalizes pretty soon. It's every ATM. It's anytime you walk in a bank, you know, and so before you know it, there's there's just stuff all over the environment that can trigger them. And that's where the avoidance comes in. People just stop interacting. Okay. That makes sense to me. And can you tell us, Dr. Brady, how are post-traumatic stress disorder and substance use disorders interconnected? Well, you know, 
one interesting thing is they both involve very much the same similar areas of the brain. So uh, th that whole fight or flight system is actually also either activated by drugs of abuse and often activated a lot during um, withdrawal from drugs of abuse. So um, people with substance use disorders are often on high alert and high levels of circulating, you know, fight or flight hormones, epinephrine and norepinephrine. But, but I think what happens on a more sort of symptomatic level is people turn to substances of abuse um, to either, let's say they're having trouble sleeping at night, maybe that'll help them sleep. Let's say their um, intrusive memories, maybe drinking alcohol will dampen those for a while. Uh, they're having trouble getting out to go to a party, maybe an amphetamine or a stimulant might, you know, help with some of the avoidance. But what happens over time is instead, it might help temporarily for a very short period of time. Uh, but what happens over time is that again, it's impacting the same brain systems. It's increasing um, the whole um, hypervigilance, fight or flight. And what, what it does is worsen the course of both illnesses. So someone may drink to sleep at night wake up the next morning, they're all jittery and stuff because they're in a little bit of withdrawal and they've got PTSD, may start drinking earlier or start drinking again. And before you know it, it's this really vicious cycle where the symptoms of one drive the symptoms of other, which worsens the course of, of both of the illnesses. It's a cycle that needs to be interrupted. Oh, this makes sense. So people with PTSD are often looking for an escape and self-medicating this state of hyperarousal. So maybe opioids, maybe cannabis, maybe alcohol, things to calm down that nervous system. Okay. But then you wake up, like you say, and you're in withdrawal and you've got a heightened state of alert and your depression's worse uh, and you feel bad about yourself uh, and you're even more isolated. Okay. Yeah. So, and uh, it's the reverse is true. I guess people with substance use disorder find themselves in very precarious situations occasionally uh, or they're, you know, at a higher risk for sexual assault, for physical assault, for car wrecks. So exactly. it, yeah, I, absolutely a vicious cycle, like you say. Um, and Dr. Brady, can you address the common myth that I hear over and over and over that you can't treat the post-traumatic stress disorder until you address the alcohol and the drug problems? I heard that for the last 24 years in practice, you know, let's just get you into addiction treatment and We'll, we, can't, we can't address the PTSD right now. Uh, sometimes it's not even diagnosed. Yeah, 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 that was, I grew up with that too. When I was in, uh, when I started clinical practice, that was the idea. And that's actually one of the things that just intrigued me so much because, you know, we've just talked about it. One of the main symptoms of PTSD is intrusive thoughts. So here your therapist or counselor is saying, we're not gonna talk about that because I don't wanna make those memories worse. Well, the disorder, the, the person has memories all the time. And the one person in the world who's supposed to be helping them, their counselor, their therapist, is ignoring something that keeps them up at night, that intrudes on their ability to participate in, in group therapy. Um, so it, you, you just can't ignore it. The symptoms are too ubiquitous. They're all throughout this person's life and they're in their, uh, they're in their head all the time. So um, it, it just doesn't make any sense. You can't ignore it because one of the things we know from the literature way back then when we all believed, oh, you're going to just make it worse if you remind them of it. Well, first of all, they already, you don't need to remind them. Someone has PTSD, they're thinking about it. So you're not reminding them by bringing it up. Um, but the early literature used to say, these people just drop out of treatment. They just won't stick in treatment. Well, you know, in retrospect, I know why. If you're in treatment and you have one thing on your mind, you know, something that you can't put out of your mind, it's really troubling you. It's impacted every part of your life. And the people that are treating you are saying, uh-uh, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to do that until you're sober for a, a month. You know, that doesn't feel empathic to people, I don't think. So I think that that's a problem. I think that makes great sense. And if you treat the PTSD, does the substance use disorder get worse? That's what I was told. If you start doing, you start talking about the trauma, they're going to drink more, they're going to take more drugs, you're going to destabilize them. 
That is simply not true. Well, one of the first things that you, you do want to, when people come into treatment, you want to give them some tools to help them with their substance use. You want to t- t- teach them how to cope with cravings. You want to, um, you, you know, you, they, you want to develop that list of supports, that sort of thing. Um, and then when you start to, to, to talk about the trauma with them, I mean, they've got, um, you know, you're there and there's a, a support system that can, can help them even if urges to drink or use do come up. Um, and really the, the data, again, it, that from a couple of studies, Sudi's been involved in some of them I have where you treat both PTSD and substance use at the same time is um, people whose PTSD respond, people who are getting good PTSD treatment, whose PTSD symptoms are going down are much less likely to use drugs. So treating the PTSD actually improves the treatment outcomes for the alcohol and drug use by quite a bit. If, if that's the only take home message people hear, it's worth, it's golden. Now, Dr. Brady, give me a couple of the most common treatment options for someone suffering from PTSD. If you have a PTSD patient walk into your office and say, what are the different ways to treat my PTSD? What's out there? Yeah, so there's psychotherapeutic treatments, behavioral, cognitive behavioral, and then there's pharmacotherapeutic treatments. And let me just say right from the start, although I um, have studied a lot of psychopharmacology, I was involved in some of the, I was that led the initial trial that led to the um, uh, approval of one of the only FDA approved treatments. Um, But the literature supports the fact that these psychotherapeutic treatments are much more effective than medications, at least today. We may have a new medication that might be even more effective, but I'll I'll talk about that in a minute. But so psychotherapeutic treatments are the mainstay of treatment. And by that, I mean, most of these are exposure-based treatments where you sort of gradually expose people to those things in there, to the event itself and or those things in the environment that they've been avoiding. But they do that under, you know, very careful supervision. There's other treatments that avoid exposure, but really provide more support and more um, helping people to make their environment safer for themselves without actually uh, doing any exposure. There's cognitive restructuring. Um, There's another therapy called EMDR or um, eye movement um, desensitization. And, you know, that uh, treatment probably acts by really providing sort of a um, uh, training the brain in some ways to turn off those memories through the use of this, these eye movements or other repetitive movements. So there are a number of different behavioral and biobehavioral and cognitive behavioral um, therapies that have shown pretty good efficacy. Um, on the medication side, we've got two approved drugs that are both serotonin reuptake inhibitors. One of those is sertraline or Zoloft. The other is paroxetine or Paxil. Mm. But I have to say one other very exciting thing, probably a month or two ago was published the FDA. I don't know if you guys, everybody's been hearing about the use of psychedelics plus therapy. And let me just say, I think it's really important to stress that um, um, the use of these psychedelic medications outside of a therapy context um, and without knowing what the dosage is and everything like that is really a bad idea for anybody with PTSD or a substance use disorder. However, Recent studies have shown very judicious use of, um, you know, moderate doses. Usually it's a two or three dose regimen while the person is in supervision um, with very specifically addressing issues uh, related to PTSD. Um, In that kind of a, a protocol, um, we, it's been demonstrated MDMA. There was a very nice um, article that was just published in Nature Neuroscience, um, three site clinical trial that showed that therapy plus MDMA versus therapy plus placebo was about twice as effective if you had the MDMA versus the placebo. Oh, that's so fascinating. It's not a breakthrough. It's what they call breakthrough. FDA has given it breakthrough status. So they're allowing experimentation with it, but it is not 
um, available. Um, I think it might be soon, but it's going to be with a lot of caveats and a lot of, I think, um, restrictions around the way it's used and the context in, in which it's used. Oh, good. That's exciting news. Only with professional treatment. Yes. Okay. I like that you underlined that. Um, now, I wonder, uh, uh, Dr. Beck, what can you tell us about the COPE manual? Well, the COPE manual, um, which uh, stands for the Concurrent Treatment of PTSD and Substance Use Disorders Using Prolonged Exposure, is a manual that um, initially started, um, gosh, in the late 1990s with some of the work that Dr. Brady was leading. And uh, it was it was pretty revolutionary at the time to be able to work with individuals who had current um, cocaine dependence is what we were working on there and PTSD to be able to do this trauma-focused exposure-based work with them. Um, and I've been, I've been able to, um, to work with Dr. Brady and, and colleagues on you know, refining the treatment and um, really getting it to the, the optimal um, contents, if you will. It was published in 2014 um, by Oxford University Press. And so it is available to the general community. Um, it's 12 sessions. Uh, so in only 12 sessions, um, you know, we can do a lot to help people who are struggling with PTSD and a co-occurring addiction. Um, it's individual therapy, so it's not a group-based therapy, it's individual. And usually um, sessions are once a week uh, for about 90 minutes with some homework in between. With the same therapist, right? You don't have to have substance use disorder treatment in one building and then go across town on a bus to find another building that will give you your trauma treatment. That's such an advantage, isn't it? Exactly. It's integrated because we know that these, these conditions are so integrated in a person's life um, mm -hmm. and physiology. And so it's an integrated treatment with the same therapist, same treatment episode, if you will. So pretend I was a patient in your office and you are trying to um, explain prolonged exposure to me. And I say to you, why do I have to talk about it? Won't this go away with over time? How do yeah. you, what do you respond to me and how do you explain prolonged exposure and how it works, I guess? Well, I would start by, you know, of course, telling them that it's, it's totally their choice. So I won't, I won't be making them do anything, um, I'll be encouraging them. I'm going to explain to them why I, I would really support them doing this and how it can be helpful. I tell them about the data behind it. Um, but because, you know, both with PTSD and addiction, there's so much loss of control. I think it's really important to make sure that the individual, the patient or the client knows that they're in control here and we're just uh -huh. here to help support them and walk them through it. So prolonged exposure is um, helping individuals approach those uh, situations, those feelings, those memories, um, all those things that they've been avoiding uh, that are safe, but mm -hmm. they're causing them a lot of distress. So we work in a very gradual way. It's not a, like flooding per se, where you just you know dive in fully. So we work in a really gradual way with them, um, both through imaginal exposure in the therapy session, and then in vivo exposures, which are done in the real world, outside, ah. uh, outside the therapy session. Interesting. It can, it, can take some, it can take some review, some um, convincing, if you will, because you know most people come in and, and they might be thinking, I have been trying for years or decades to avoid yeah. all of these things, so why in the world would I actually go and approach these? So. You know, there's an, an instructional psychoeducational piece um, that's really important. And so I wonder if you could give me an example of, uh, I guess you're going to ask me what kinds of situations um, trigger my PTSD or what kind of, um, I guess, situations I avoid, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think you're going to ask me the trauma that I want to work on um, and then do you tape the sessions where I am retelling you my trauma? Yes, all the above. So um, a lot of people, most of the people, in fact, that we work with have experienced multiple traumas. Yeah. Um, 
So they might have experienced natural disaster. They might have experienced sexual abuse as a child. They might have experienced physical and sexual abuse as an adult. So we really work with them um, on a good place to start. And we call that the index trauma. So we, we work through and figure out together what's causing them the most problems right now. And usually that's you know, related to what they're avoiding and what's causing them the most memories of it um, to start right there. And so during the therapy session, um, we'll give them some tools of, of course, they have a number of different um, techniques and skills to help cope with, um, to cope with emotions, um, to cope with some of the, you know, the pain that's associated, I think, with revisiting. Um, but they're, they're experiencing that pain all the time, every day anyway. So we're approaching it to help them work through it, to not just keep trying to put it away. Uh, and we do record, as long as, you know, they're agreeable, um, we do record, audio record the sessions so that they can then listen to them um, in between the therapy sessions. Because there's so much that happens, you know, in that 90 minutes that it can be really helpful for patients to just go back through it and hear that again, hear it again. It, and the rationale behind that is if I listen uh, the first time to my retelling you my trauma, my distress is probably through the roof. And I, and I rank it. And then if I go home and I listen to it the next day, I habituate to it. And I guess it loses its power over me over time, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the first time um, a person, you know, is revisiting that memory of the trauma can be really tough, uh, mm -hmm. which makes sense. They've been trying not to talk about it, think about it, feel everything. Um, so we go over the memory of it repeatedly because, as you were saying, the anxiety and the distress associated with it habituates or it comes down over time. If we're thinking about like a scale of zero to 100 and 100 is the most distressed they've ever been, they might start at like a 90. But the more we do that, the more we go over it, they're coming down over time. Maybe they're down to a 70, maybe the next time it's a 60. Um, so it helps them habituate and it also reiterates that it's a memory. It's not actually happening right now. The actual event, the trauma that they experienced was dangerous. But what they're revisiting now is just a memory of it. So it helps differentiate that. And it helps them feel better, like with their self-esteem, their, their you know, self-confidence. It shows them they can tolerate this. That, that's an aha moment for a person, right, with trauma, that this is not happening all over again. Because like Dr. Brady was saying, that fire alarm, they're on high alert, and it feels like an emergency, doesn't it? Yes, it does, right. It feels like they are in danger, and they need to scan right now to find that threat. But they're just at the grocery store, and right. they're getting food for the week, and it's, it's a relatively safe place. So what's, give me one example of one way if... I have my distress go up. I'm listening to this tape at home the day after we've had our first session, and I am having a very, very, I guess, uh, panicky feeling, and I uh, want to take a drink. This is where, I guess, the cognitive behavioral therapy aspect around my um, uh, substance use problems comes in handy, right? You give me coping skills so I don't go out and drink or take drugs, right? Exactly, right. So we teach, um, we teach individuals uh, that cravings are totally normal. It's a part of recovery. So we want them to expect that and not be taken off guard, you know, when they do feel cravings or urges to use. Uh, and then teach them a couple of different, you know, uh, cognitive behavioral techniques that they can choose from to, to help them manage those cravings. And part of it's nice because it, um, it mirrors the anxiety that, you know, the craving goes up just like a wave and it eventually is coming down without them using. And a lot of times when that wave is coming up and it, you know, it's growing and growing, they feel like, oh, I have to use right now or else this will never go away. Yeah. So now they get to learn it actually does go away just like a wave. The anxiety follows that same pattern too. They, they learn to tolerate that and to deal with that and they feel you know, that they have a lot more control over it now than it has over them. And, and you call that urge surfing in the manual, right? 
Well, urge surfing, yeah, is kind of related to that. Um, urge surfing is one of the techniques where um, it's more of like a mindfulness technique. Oh. Um, sometimes distraction is used, like maybe they go and read a book or they call a friend or they go exercise and they notice that that craving, which on average only lasts 15 minutes or less. So oh, cravings wow. on average are 15 minutes or less. Sometimes it's there's a real doozy, but most of the time, we're talking 15 minutes so they can kind of distract themselves through healthy activities, see it come up and down. If they're not, um, you know, if they've tried and some of those things are not working, urge surfing can be helpful where they're sitting with the craving. They are noticing it. They're not judging it. They're just watching it where it might be through their body. Do they feel it in their mouth? Do they feel it in their stomach? You know, where is it? Where is it going? And they can kind of rate it and watch it too. You know, the cravings, you know, from that zero to 100 scale change also. And so just getting to know that a little better through urge surfing can be helpful. With so the you're... eye in mind, they always know that it's going to go away. I mean, that's, you know. Yes, exactly. Kind of wave right. metaphor is important because it comes up, but it will go back down. Yeah. It will go back down. That's right. And, and Dr. Brady, that might be news to someone early in recovery who feels crushed by his or her cravings, right? Right. Yeah. And who maybe has never really tried to ride a craving out. Maybe mm -hmm. the first thing they do when they get the craving is seek a, a, a drink or, or a drug. Right. Oh, that's so important. So the person over time feels like they have mastery over their drug or alcohol cravings and mastery over the feelings associated with the trauma too. And the thoughts, they, they're just thoughts. This isn't happening now. Uh, I'm safe in the present moment. So mindfulness is part of this. Okay. Yeah, yeah they're approaching those feelings um, and sitting with them in some sense, yeah. So if somebody's listening right now, how would they find a COPE manual trained therapist? That is a good question. So right. we are doing some more work on, um, on dissemination. Um, there is a, there's a training, you know, that wouldn't put them in with a COPE. I guess they would email myself or Dr. Brady as a good start to help to find someone who is trained in COPE. Um, I think also, you know, it's, you, you can, uh, you know, I always encourage people, especially, you know, when people in a desperate situation, they're going to seek treatment and probably go with the first, but it, it, you, you know, when I have people who, where it's not such a desperate situation, sometimes I'll give two or three names and say, why don't you give a call, talk to them and, you know, see what mm -hmm. you think in the same context, you could call and ask what, you know, what is your experience with integrated treatment for PTSD and substance use disorder? I mean, I think that's a totally, you know, I, I think the funny thing about mental health is for so long, uh, you know, you guys, again, probably remember this. I, I'm the oldest in the group for sure. But, you know, there was, there was controversy and question about whether you would even tell a patient what their diagnosis was. Now, can you imagine that? I mean, if we're in the practice of medicine, Yes, you tell people what their diagnosis is and discuss what the various treatment options are. And similarly, yes, it's it's perfectly legitimate for a patient to ask a therapist or a psychiatrist or whatever what their qualifications are, what their training is, and what's their experience in this particular either type of therapy or integrated. You might be more, um, you might want to Throw, throw a broader net and just make sure that they're um, familiar with evidence-based integrated treatments for um, PTSD and substance use disorders. That's, that's a great thing to bring up. Like I could buy one of these manuals on Amazon. I know that because I bought one and I have the therapist manual and I have the patient handbook. I could buy both on Amazon. I could take it to my therapist and I could say, this is what I'd like to work on with you. Mm -hmm. And if the pay, if the therapist says, "Hey, I don't think I'm up for that," uh, or if the therapist says, "Yes, I'm invested in helping you, and I will seek more supervision around this," mm -hmm. I might get in touch with Dr. Uh, Back or Dr. Brady. I might find out where I can get a little bit of help, and I'll work with you on this. 
I've, I've done that with patients before with different yeah. manuals, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay. So I think, I think that's, uh, that's wonderful. What's the research uh, tell us about the COPE manual so far? Well, um, yeah, over the past 20 years, there've been a number of different studies in the United States, um, in Australia and in Sweden, looking at the um, effectiveness of COPE in the general population, like community samples, as well as military veterans. And um, we're finding that, um, that individuals who, who do COPE, they have significant reductions in their PTSD. Um, many of them will no longer meet criteria for PTSD and significant reduction in their substance use, as well as associated features um, like depression. So, um, we know that, that it's very effective um, in helping people um, recover from both PTSD and addiction. And it's only 12 sessions. That's only three months. I know. When you think about the number of, of days and weeks and years that people have suffered with PTSD and addiction, you know, 12 sessions is, is really not that long at all. I wonder if any residential treatment centers across the country are using the COPE manual yet. And if they aren't, they, they really should consider it because they have a captive audience. Yeah, absolutely. We've been thinking about that um, as well with, um, with some research ideas too. Um, looking at, uh, there's, there's Sonia Norman's group in California um, mm. has, has studied COPE, um, especially military veterans and um, done trauma-focused work, exposure-based work um, on inpatient units, residential inpatient units. So I think that could be really a great way to go. Um, our colleagues in Australia are also um, testing the manual or the therapy now um, among adolescents, and that's going well. And the reason is that so many of the adults that we see, you know, they, they had early life traumas, the vast majority of them, before age 15 have had some type of trauma that occurred and they usually started using shortly thereafter. So if we can interrupt, you know, that, um, that, that process, then that could really help somebody's life. Oh, I think it would be wonderful. And yeah. so tell me a little bit about the in vivo exposure. Um, give me some examples. Somebody has been through trauma. What kinds of in vivo homework might you give them? And how does that work? Sure. So the in vivos um, will be tailored to their particular trauma. Okay. Um, so if someone, let's say, you know, had a, had a horrible car accident um, and driving is a real problem, they cannot drive, especially not during like regular work hours. Maybe they only drive at the, late at night to go to the grocery store or something then we might work with them um, so that they can drive and they can go and do the things that they need to do to take care of their family and, and function in life. Um, we might start with them sitting in their car and working through that. We might start with them. The next step might be, and it's, it's kind of graded up, up from that zero to 100 um, in terms of how much distress it caused. They might sit in the car with the ignition on. Mm -hmm. And then they might put it in drive and go around the block. And then okay. the next time they might, you know, kind of work up to where they can drive when it's not very, um, there's not a lot of traffic to get them up to, um, you know, high traffic times of the day, five o'clock, et cetera, so that they can do that. It's not an impediment to their life. Just baby steps. Baby steps. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely want to start with some mastery experiences, you know, totally. so they're, they're getting used to it. They're getting, comfortable with it and feeling more confident. And what are some of the strategies to decrease their anxiety if they're kind of feeling crippled by panicky feelings? Yeah, well, we teach them a breathing relaxation exercise early mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. so that they can, you know, connect with the breath and, um, and can use that to, to help them um, reduce some of the anxiety um, and also piece of the learning is that the anxiety is very uncomfortable, but it's not dangerous. Ah, that's so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're not in danger. It's just a feeling. Step outside your feeling and observe it and describe it. Very, very mindfulness again and again, yeah. right? 
Yeah. And you, you don't have to act on it. So if you've got a, a person who is has a drinking or a drugging problem, impulsivity tends to be pretty high. Right. So this is new to them. You don't have to act on a feeling. You don't have to escape a bad feeling. You can just notice it. Yes, absolutely. So there's, right, we try not to, um, we don't want to promote escaping the feelings too much. We want to, yes. we want to befriend those emotions, so to speak, you know, get to know them better and sit with them and um, learn that they're, they're troublesome, they're inconvenient, they're uncomfortable, but they're okay. They don't place us at danger, in danger. Okay. How do you motivate somebody? Say you've got a person with PTSD and a substance use uh, problem in your office. Um, I wonder what kind of motivational interviewing questions you might ask them to kind of get them excited about this. Because PTSD, wow, um, if, yeah, it just feels uh, too huge to, I guess, approach in, to the person on the couch, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head with motivational interviewing uh, techniques. So asking them, you know, why are they, why are they coming in? Why are they motivated mm -hmm. to work on their PTSD? What will their life be like if they do do nothing? You know, they don't work on it. What could their life be like um, in six months from now, you know, three months or six months from now, if they no longer have PTSD? What are all those things that they would love to do again um, that they just can't do right now. And usually connecting it to something like they would love to go take their children to the playground, mm -hmm. but they don't feel safe enough to do that. They would love to sleep in the same bed as their partner, mm -hmm. but they haven't been doing that because of the nightmares and stuff. They would love to get a job again, you know, so helping them really connect with what will motivate them to, to work through it. So yeah, just help them dream. And, and yeah, where do you place your value system, right? What are your priorities? And if they say my kids, uh, well, how would getting into recovery and recovering from PTSD also, how would that impact you as a mother or a father? Okay, so you really involve their dreams, their hopes, their visions, their values. Definitely. Okay, great. And who's a perfect candidate? What kind of client is best suited for the COPE manual? Um, for COPE, it's designed for people with PTSD and um, any type of alcohol or drug use disorder. Sometimes people um, are suffering from both. And uh, they need to have some memory of the trauma. It doesn't have to be the, you know, everything, every little detail, um, but some general memory of the trauma because of the imaginal exposure work. So if they were, for example, if they were, um, had a traumatic brain injury, um, because they were in an explosion and, and there's literally, it's literally impossible for them to be able to remember what, uh, what happened and what occurred during that time. Um, we might consider other treatment options. Um, so having some kind of memory um, is important there and some desire to significantly reduce or abstain. So COPE isn't an abstinent only uh, treatment. Mm -hmm. In our research, we found that only about 50% of people have abstinence as a goal. Mm -hmm. So we'd be turning away, you know, half of the people who are coming in for treatment. We would work with them where they're at and help them to significantly reduce that use. If they don't, you know, if they don't want to work on their use at all, um, think it's no problem, then we would also do some maybe motivational interviewing um, around that. Okay. And do people who decide to go the total abstinence path do tend to do better? We're learning more and more about that. Um, if, if somebody is totally abstinent, then the substance use is not going to cause problems for them. I mean, that's the safest, like healthiest right. um, way for them to go. And certainly if they, you know, have, um, have had a lot of trouble, um, like withdrawal symptoms or needed detox several times, they have medical um, problems from the substance use. And we really want to encourage them to work for abstinence. Um, because it can be life-threatening to them. This is very hopeful. Um, we've got about three minutes uh, till the end of the show. I, I wonder if, uh, uh, Dr. Brady, if, if you could say something to the person in the listening audience who's suffering from both an addiction and PTSD, and maybe they're feeling a loss of agency, they're feeling scared, they're feeling hopeless, they're feeling disempowered. What would you say to them today? Um, I would say that um, 
that that they can change this. This is within their control. There are treatments, there are treatments we know are effective. Um, it, it may not be an easy road, but their lives can be so much improved if they would, if they'll seek some help. That's truly hopeful. Dr. Beck, any parting words? I just want to second that as well. Um, even somebody who's, you know, the vast majority of their adult life, maybe even they have, have struggled with these things, um, they can actually change these. They don't have to live out the rest of their life um, like this. So I hope they will seek treatment. I hope so too. And Dr. Back, real quick, can you tell us something about your new COPE study for veterans with PTSD and alcohol use disorder? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so if, if there are um, any veterans with PTSD and alcohol use disorder who are interested in COPE, we have a clinical trial um, that just recently got started. It's funded by the National Institutes of Health. And um, you, you can learn more about it by, I can give you our phone number. Yes, please. Uh, that would be helpful. That would um, be great. 843-792-HELP. Or you could go to help PTSD at musc.edu. We're on Facebook and Twitter uh, as well from MUSC PTSD plus alcohol research. Oh, that's an exciting uh, uh, and wonderful offer. I hope people take you up on that. Uh, Dr. Kathleen Brady and Dr. Sudi Back, um, two tireless, passionate crusaders helping through science and research make uh, the lives better of so many people. And that was a very bold study back in the late 90s, I might add, to, oh man, to take people, uh, women addicted to cocaine uh, and do prolonged exposure therapy. That And very gutsy, very bold, and look at the results, setting people free uh, you know, one day at a time. It's, it's, you guys are heroes to me, and I really, really appreciate the fact that you came on the show. Uh, it's a wonderful manual and research supported too. I like the evidence base behind it. And it, it's wonderful that the person doesn't have to travel across town. These people, in my experience, get, they, they fall through the cracks. Uh, either they don't get diagnosed, they get sent to the other side of town, and the building is closed down 10 years ago, uh, or they go to a talk therapist who doesn't know anything about uh, integrated uh, uh, treatment or prolonged exposure or EMDR. Talk therapy alone does not treat PTSD. So, yeah, right. yeah. I, uh, I think important, an important part of it. Yes, yes, it has to be with a, pro, a trained uh, professional. Just going and spilling your guts about your trauma and leaving feeling worse uh, isn't, isn't necessarily treatment. So this has been wonderful fun having you on the show, and uh, I hope you have a uh, wonderful rest of your day. Thank, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks thank so much. Really appreciate it. Okay. This is uh, Recovery, the Hero's Journey, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, the Hero's Journey, is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone. following program